Hello and welcome to Ecology and Me, a citizen scientist podcast for curious humans. I'm Kate Douglas, curious human, and today we're talking about grass. Today's episode was inspired by a friend of the podcast, Sam, who asks, So I live in Los Angeles and uh, we have grass in our yard that is completely dead because we don't water it. But there's people with lawns and sprinklers and all of these unnatural things so they can have like green lawns. So I guess my question is like, what's grass? (laughs) Why, Why do we have grass? Why did grass become the thing that everybody has in front of their houses? What does it do? And in a place like this, why do I need it? And the more you think about lawns, the stranger they become. These surreal green carpets that people fastidiously mow down over and over in a Sisyphusian sort of ritual. Why do we do this? I sat down with botanist, plant ecologist, and conservation scientist Jessa Finch to get some answers. The term grass refers to a plant family, the Poaceae. It's one of the most speciose plant families in the world. I think it has several hundred different genera and like thousands of species. Okay, I looked this up. There are over 12,000 species of grasses in the family Poaceae. Holy moly. So there are tons of grasses. So grass is what we call the common name. And then there are also the scientific names, which are also sometimes called the botanical name or the Latin name. So you can have something like Kentucky bluegrass. That is a common name. And then to make things even more fun, there are plants that are not grasses in terms of their taxonomy or their lineage, their phylogeny, but we call them grasses. And then there are, you know, the opposite. Um, A lot of grasses don't have grass in the common name, like big blue stem, prairie drop seed. I looked up some more common names for plants in the Poaceae family and found a whole bunch of really great potential new band names for me, like Lovegrass, Job's Tears, Timothy. Yes, you heard me, Timothy. And then I found out I recognize some of these plants in the Poaceae family. Rice, oats, corn, and so many more. Humans eat tons of grasses. When we see a a green movie lawn, is it all the same plant that we're seeing? Basically, that's the most popular grass plant in the United States. Yeah, from my understanding, there are different grass species that are the most popular in different regions of the country. So like what you would plant in Texas is different than me here in the, the Northeast or out in the Northwest. But to get that evenness and uniformity, they're, they're all monocultures pretty much. Cause you can, you've probably been out and noticed like a crab grass and a Bermuda grass. You've been able to differentiate two different types of grass and that looks messy. It doesn't look like a tiny lawn. So yeah, it'd be the standard is to have monoculture, which also has very little variation, which is not good for supporting diversity and the larger, the natural ecosystems. So if I let it keep growing, is it going to change in any way if I let my lawn just kind of go? Or is it other plants that are coming in and populating my landscape that'll make it look different? Yeah, great question. Um, I probably should have started with this. Grass is really good for doing what it does because its growing points or its meristems are at the base of the plant. So when you come and mow it down, 
it doesn't die. If you, if you just cut the top of a tree, that tree will die. <laughs> um, because all of its growing, its growing points, which are called meristems, um, are at the tips of its branches. And with grasses, it's at the base of a blade. So you can cut the blade back down and it will, it will grow again. If you don't mow your lawn, if you, or if you, you know, have ever seen that unruly neighbor's lawn get wild, um, grasses are angiosperms, which are flowering plants. So you will see a spike and then you will see little hanging bits, <laughs> which are the flowers. Um, a lot of people I talk to who aren't very familiar with plants are really shocked when they find out that grasses flower. So they're very inconspicuous flowers to us and they're primarily pollinated by grass. So a lot of the more charismatic flowers that have to attract animal pollinators, they are big and showy and bright and smell good. But if you just need wind to blow your pollen around, it doesn't matter how you look. I looked up photos of flowering Kentucky bluegrass, and honestly, it's quite beautiful. The plants grow up to a height of about three feet and develop these lovely feathery pink flowers. So does this mean we could have a bunch of flowers in our front yard all the time and we choose not to? Why? Yeah. And then in terms of how did it become this ubiquitous thing that I can look at my window and see so much grass, that is definitely a story that I can speculate as to parts of it. Part of it is that it's very expensive, like a lot of things. It became a status symbol because it was very resource intensive to maintain this perfectly uniform Basically, a grass carpet is what they call it. Picture the gardens of Versailles or like the shortest putting green. So just immaculate. We can trace the American love of lawns back to the French Palace Versailles, actually. Lawns similar to those today first appeared in England and France in the 1700s when landscape architect and gardener André Le Notre designed the gardens of the Palace Versailles and included a tapis vert which literally translates to green carpet. And so in the 17th and 18th centuries, the lawn was a symbol of aristocracy in England. It meant you could afford to keep land that wasn't for building or for food. It was just for being wealthy on. A lot of lower income people had to have very functional landscapes like pasture for for animals or gardens or orchards, which are very messy, where, where the affluent can just have this useless piece of green carpet for them to have their tea on or play croquet or something like this. Definitely it was in terms of when it came to the United States, wealthy people in the upper echelons of society here trying to emulate these grand estates they saw in France and in England that really made this the aspirational landscape for someone with too much money. And, you know, grass is still expensive today. Did a quick Google search and it told me that Kentucky bluegrass costs about 35 to 40 cents per square foot. And in America, the average lawn is 10,871 square feet. So getting your lawn done would cost about $4,000. On top of that, Kentucky bluegrass needs 1.5 to 2.5 inches of water per week, depending on the season. So add in the water bills and the money for the lawnmower. That's just a lot all around to look rich and fit in. So how did the lawn reach the American middle class? Lawns in America really start to show up in a huge way from the 1870s onwards. Improvements in water supply and the invention of the lawnmower also helped spread lawn culture across the country. And then of course we have the rise of suburbia. The home they've always dreamed of. 
the happiest investment they have ever made. There is so much to talk about here, but I'll just give you some snapshots for now. One, after World War II, the government financed low-cost mortgages, which made owning your home cheaper than renting. So, welcome to suburbia. Two, the public park movement, which helped influence the first suburban communities on the East Coast. And three, the rise of the automobile and train travel. This meant that homeowners wanted to make the front of their houses beautiful for passerby's sakes. If you are at all curious about this, there is tons of information and links in the show notes. It is so fascinating. There's a whole movement right now to kill your lawn, to tear it up. So a lot of people, probably in the last couple decades, starting really in the 1970s, have been getting much more into native plants, so plants that are indigenous to the location where you are. Most often, I mean, defining a native plant is controversial in and of itself, but most often it means the plants that were growing in North America before European settlement. And so these are plants that are native here, which means they're actually pretty low maintenance. They already are adapted to the conditions, as opposed to a lot of plants that became really popular in ornamental horticulture, which are um, from different places all, the, all over the world and require a lot of water and a lot of pruning. I mean, they're very gorgeous, and that's why people love them so much and want to cultivate them. But it's they provide very little value to wildlife because our wildlife here in North America didn't co-evolve with these with these plants. And they also require a lot of chemical investment in terms of weed killers and then fertilizers and a lot of water investment. So there's been a very, a very, very significant shift to thinking about <laughs> these very prim and proper English gardens with very clean lines to more naturalistic, organic, kind of sometimes referred to ecological gardening or ecological horticulture, where you're creating kind of with a with a soft hand, you are kind of gently curating this natural aesthetic. Some people love it, some people hate it, um, but it takes all types. We know that there's been a lot of research to show that planting natives, planting a diversity of plants, even in small lots, like your small suburban yard or a little tiny pocket park in the city, can support a lot of birds, a lot of insects, a lot of small mammals. So it really just magnifies the biodiversity like exponentially. In 2005, NASA published a report showing that a conservative estimate for lawn acreage in America was about 128,000 square kilometers, or about 79,535 square miles. That's a little smaller than the state of Kansas. And that also means, and I'm quoting the study here, lawns, including residential and commercial lawns, golf courses, etc., could be considered the single largest irrigated crop in America in terms of surface area, end quote. Holy moly, that's a lot of status symbol. But Jessa told me about someone who's working to change this. Doug Talmy, I don't know if you're familiar with him, his work at the University of Delaware. He's an entomologist whose most recent campaign is basically to make the largest national park in the country and for it to be a combination of every personal homeowner's lawn. And if we just combined all of our yards together, we could create a huge amount of habitat for, he's very passionate about insects, but everything up now the food chain. Doug's movement is called Homegrown National Park, which according to their website is 
a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks, end quote. On the website, there's an interactive map to show each person's contribution. You should really check this out. It is so cool. Small actions by many people that help insects and plants and humans and so many other things. I am very into this. Okay, so in summary, grass is a flowering plant that has merry stems near the bottom, which is why we can mow it so well and it keeps growing back. And our American obsession with the lawn is tied to castles in England and France and money and status. And maybe we should all just tear up our lawns and play with all the insects when they come to visit. I don't know. Just a thought. I spoke to Jessa about tons of other fascinating questions that I received from listeners and friends like, how do plants clean the air? How do vines know where to grow? Do plants like music? So if you want to hear more, visit my Patreon where I'm releasing even more content. That's patreon.com slash ecology and me. Thank you for listening. I'm Kate Douglas. Keep asking questions. This episode was recorded, mixed, and produced by me, theme song is by the amazing Matthew Dean Marsh. Follow us on social at Ecology and Me. 